Well, we are freewheeling again without the firm hand of producer Kate this week. She's in Boston with her boyfriend, no doubt having a fabulous time. We are lucky enough, though, to have Sarah Cudden standing in for her this week, so all's well. This is LJ, and you're listening to Careers Talk. We have a fantastic show for you this week, not least because of our esteemed guest, Paul Cutts, CEO of the Exhibition Road Cultural Group. An accomplished musician and an experienced journalist, we talked to him about working in the cultural and arts sector in the UK. Somebody once asked me how I could describe my job and I said it's a bit like herding really big intellectual cats. It's fascinating because the the one thing about the institutions is that they are all about promoting education and culture to the broadest audiences. No pick the poster this week. Instead, we have some advice about preparing for interviews from author of Now You've Been Shortlisted, Denise Taylor. We always, as interviewers, are going to ask you about your strengths and weaknesses. You know, for example, you know, what does your boss, what's your friend? Think of some of your strengths. And the more you understand yourself, the easier is to give those answers. Ijoma Wabaso will be along later for the Jobs Top 10 and Julian Linley's tip for this week is a cautionary word about not becoming involved in office gossip. But first, Kerry, hello. Hello. What are you going to tell us about this week? I'm going to talk about our live Q&A, the eagerly awaited, long-awaited Q&A on photography. Yes, it was three weeks in its coming, wasn't it? it? Three? I thought maybe two. Four. <laughs> No, it's, it's all this year. Two. Since <laughs> the beginning of this year, you've been saying it's going to be next week. It's just going to be next up week. A bit of hype, I'll say, you know. So tell us all about it, Carrie. What happened? Was it good? Was it worth the wait? I thought it was brilliant, actually. And our panelists were great. We had some really impressive people on the panel. There was Jill Fermanovsky, and she's a big deal in photography. She's done a lot of rock and musician work, and she sort of founded Rock Archive, which has got all her work and other notable music photography. She did the uh, really famous shots of Oasis. Your Manchester in the background and there's a great one that she's done of Liam Gallagher sort of sitting in an armchair just looking nonchalant and cool all black and white really moody how did she go into that did she did she talk about that she went to Central School of Art and Design and did graphic design so it wasn't her original plan and they did a two-week photography course and she just really got the bug for it she loved it so She thought, I want to pursue this a bit more, so spent as much time as she could taking her own pictures and assisting other photographers. And she's been working since the 70s in photography. So what kind of things, because it wasn't just about taking, obviously, pictures of bands, was it? No, not at all. The main thing people were asking was, how can I get into photography? How can I get work experience? It seems so hard to get in. And there were a couple of suggestions. One of our panellists said, why not enter some competitions? It's really good practice because you're working to a brief. So treat it like a commission, like you've got to stick to the brief, take loads of pictures until you get your strongest one. But the main thing that all of the panellists said was to start off assisting, as Jill had done. So approach photographers that you admire, maybe studios that you like their output of work and make the effort with your application you know know their work tell it email phone call and be persistent if they if they say no they said just keep keep going there is lots of talk about um photoshop as well how essential that is because photographers use photoshop as much as everybody else sort of uses word in work so you need to know all the basic stuff like cutouts file management and file conversion and be able to do it at speed as well because if you're getting into an agency you're going to be doing 75 to 100 pictures a day yeah so you need to be good at it so yeah better make sure you know what you're doing yeah and what about setting up your own website and that kind of thing yeah p- pretty much essential actually and they said you know not to put everything on there be very selective your portfolio is your best you know self-editing is a big part of marketing yourself as a photographer and I wanted to commend actually some of our users 
because a lot of them were, you know, putting links to their portfolios and saying, what do you think of this work to the panel, really using their experience. And there was even somebody who was like, would you like an assistant? You know, really, really using the platform. And I I really admire them for taking that opportunity to speak to them. Did someone say yes? (laughs) No, sadly not. They said they didn't need anyone at the moment, but referred them to photoassist.co.uk. And that's like a database of assistants where photographers go and see who's available in what sort of areas. Oh, good. Sounds excellent. Yes, it was. And you're going to put together a best of. Yeah, absolutely. We look forward to that. Thanks very much, Karen. Okay. And to Julian Lindley's tip of the week, which is a cautionary note about not becoming involved in office gossip. Over to you, Julian. Don't become involved in office gossip. And I mean this in two different ways. One, you don't want to be the subject of office gossip. And at the same time, you really don't want to be the person passing it on either. Being the subject of office gossip can have repercussions, not just today, tomorrow, next week, but it becomes increasingly difficult to be taken seriously if you're actually best remembered for being completely hammered at a party and trying to get off with a boss. I mean, I've experienced several times through my career where colleagues have overstepped the mark professionally, I feel, and involved me or people around me in their personal lives when they've had a bit too much to drink. You just have to keep a golf there to maintain your professionalism. So it's always a good idea if you have got something to get off your chest with a colleague to do it sober at work and in a professional way rather than waiting till you've had a few too many drinks and then calling up. And, you know, it happens to every person. You know, I'm sure I have been the result of drunkenly banging on to my boss at some point in the past. But one thing I would never do is to start spilling my personal life to somebody when I've had a few too many Chardonnays. And then similarly, it is also a really bad idea to be the person that passes on any office gossip. It's really undermining. It. I think it says an awful lot about a person when you hear them telling a piece of gossip about a colleague. The first thing that always goes through my head, always, is, all right then, so you're prepared to sell out a colleague like that. You'll be prepared to do the same thing to me. And I instantly lose my trust in that person. And that can be people that work for me, but it can also be peers that, you know, work alongside. And it is so important, I think, that you have trust if you want to really build your career somewhere, professional trust, that you behave in a way that you would want other people to treat you. So I'm sure I have been the subject myself of gossip. You can't help it. The more senior you become, the more you become the subject of interest to people. But because I don't practice office gossip myself, I feel as if I've got a clear conscience. So let's make a distinction between what is gossip and what is office gossip. All of us, whatever industry we work in, work in that industry because we're interested in it. So I will find myself talking in great depth about media to actually anyone that will bloody listen, really, because I'm obsessed with this and I love it. And what I'm really interested in is competitors and why competitors have chosen to work in a particular way or why decisions have been made even within my own company in a particular way. And I love to discuss that with colleagues. And I think that gossip in that respect is healthy and good when it steps over the line and becomes very unhealthy is when it starts to be about people and not about things several years ago i worked in an office which was really diabolical for office gossip i mean i had been brought into that office to change how to change the culture of it you know had been one of the things that i've been employed to do 
And it was such a poisonous environment to walk into because clearly I had one agenda, which was I need to help turn around the circulation of this title. And clearly everyone that worked there had a different perspective, which was we're just going to bitch and moan as much as we possibly can about our new boss. And it was absolutely uncomfortable. But the way that I managed to succeed in that job was to just not be sucked into it. So even though on several different occasions, people tried to draw me into the witch's coven, I used to call it, I acted completely professionally throughout the whole thing. And you know what? It worked because one by one, all of those people left that team because they saw that I wasn't going to budge from my vision. So to sum up, my tip of the week is don't become involved in office gossip. Joining me in the studio now is CEO of the Exhibition Road Cultural Group, Paul Cutts. Paul has had a fascinating career spanning international journalist, critic, editor, publisher, broadcaster, musician and now cultural leader. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. That, that's quite an intro, isn't it? It is quite an intro, yes. I, I hardly to... recognise myself from it. <laughs> looking forward to hearing about it. So before we talk about really about what you, your backgrounds and everything, I think it would be useful for us to talk about Exhibition Road and what it is. Exhibition Road is essentially the cultural heartland of London and has been ever since Prince Albert created the vision for the South Kensington Estate in 1851. It's home to the most concentrated and most diverse array of cultural and learning and scientific institutions anywhere in the world in just over 80-odd acres. We've got 16 internationally recognised institutions covering everything from science, music, international geography and geology, natural history, an Ismaili cultural centre for the Islamic community in London. So it's an incredible diverse portfolio of major institutions and it's my job as chief executive of the Exhibition Road Cultural Group to encourage us all to work in collaboration to develop public projects with a large emphasis on education but also to act as a liaison for the institutions in the political and public arenas. Okay so give us some sort of idea of how each of the individual institutions collaborate in the group. Well essentially we're a member organisation so each of the institutions pays an annual membership fee to to belong to the cultural group and it's our job in the executive office to identify and develop projects that can help us add value to the individual members as well as grow the collective profile of the area and we do that in in two ways the first one which is the most visible is the public facing work that we do which is to develop large-scale collaborative projects and possibly the best known of those is a project that we run every summer called exhibition road music day and it's a way to encourage people who've never experienced the institutions or south kensington which has in the past suffered from this reputation of being a a very rich part of London and b the institutions are very large and seen as rather elitist which couldn't be further from the truth so we open up the doors to everybody for free music something that's a universal language that everybody can understand to expose people to the extraordinary buildings and collections that we have across the estate. Okay so let's talk about you and where you've come from and how you've got into working in the sector so you said to me that you started off as a journalist. Yeah that's right I decided when I was literally a kid that I I wanted to be a journalist, a writer for a newspaper or broadcaster. And it was partly because my dad was a trade union representative and used to get lots of phone calls from the media. You know, all these journalists would call him up at two, three in the morning. And I was really fascinated by who these people called journalists were who could just call you up and, and, you know, exploit you for information. And 
I thought that sounds like a really cool gig. So I thought I'd, I'm, I'm going to be a journalist as well. And so, you know, the, the typical way, you know, an enthusiastic young kid, I was 11, I think, when I decided I wanted to be a journalist, 14, 15, I was, I was freelancing at the local radio station, well, freelancing for my bus fare and a cup of tea. You, you went and won an award to go and do a newspaper in Wyoming? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the... Tell one us of about the, that. Yeah, it's pretty wacky, actually, the whole thing. Um, I read a, a mixed degree at university. I, I graduated in, in English, but I also read music and law as subsidiary subjects. After graduation, I, I won a place at the Centre for Journalism Studies in Cardiff. And on graduating from that was one of two people, including Nicholas Watts, now of The Guardian, yeah. um, who was um, chosen as a winner of the Stationers and Newspaper Makers Guild Annual Young Journalist Travel Award. I decided to go and edit a Native American newspaper in the lower Rockies of Wyoming for the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes. So <laughs> you say that very nonchalantly, but I mean, you know, tell us about that. The experience was extraordinary. And the reason that, that it happened was that a former master's student on the, at the journalism school had come from that part of the US and had gone back to set up a, a chain of small town newspapers. So suggested to the publisher in Wyoming that I might be able to come for three or four months if I could secure the funding or a scholarship, which I did. And uh, off I went. So I spent four months living in a essentially a glorified log cabin at the foot of the lower Wind River Mountains, being woken up by deer and the occasional bear, and um, <laughs> spending my time interviewing Chief Matthew Come Running Buck about the problems on the native reservation. God, it's amazing. It was an extraordinary experience. I was 21 years of age. I'd, I'd travelled a little bit, but I'd never lived away from the UK before. And uh, there I was in the eighth largest state with the smallest population where men are men and sheep are very nervous. So let's talk about the music because obviously the music's something that's uh, followed you through your whole career and obviously a very important part of your job now. Well, I could sing before I could talk. Really, um, my parents always say that. You was know, that not I was, screaming? Uh, apparently not. No, which is one, one reason why they decided to sort of cultivate it. But my family wasn't from a background where we could afford private music lessons or, or anything else. I grew up on a council estate in South Wales, and it just wasn't part of our, our you know, sort of economic realities or our cultural realities. Were really. they singers then? No, I mean, Mum's got a very beautiful voice, and my father's mother, who I never knew, apparently she was quite musical too. So, you know, and of course, being a Welshman, you know, obviously so, it runs you know, through. As we as we say, you know, you know, to be born Welsh is not to be born with a silver spoon in your mouth but with poetry in your heart and oh, music in your soul oh. so you know that's so it's, it's obviously you know, it's, a, it's an important part of the cultural heritage as well you ran a choir as well yeah i ran a, a, community, a community choir, choir. in london and it called people from right across london together to, to make music and that's one reason why music day at exhibition road is is a project that really excites us because we can attract people to the area who've never been there before we know from all of the evaluation and post event research that we do that something like one in five people who come to that event have never been to Exhibition Road even if they're from London and they come to Exhibition Road to hear music and then experience three or four different institutions museums or the Serpentine Gallery or the main stage that we put up in Kensington Gardens in Hyde Park so it's always been for me something that's an incredibly important sort of tool for social cohesion which sounds terribly grand but (laughs) But I, mean, I think music just speaks to people in a way that other art forms sometimes don't. Take me through how you actually got to be CEO of the group. It's come as much of a surprise to me as it might have done to some other people, really. I'd, I'd spent all of my career, 15 years, essentially, as an arts and cultural journalist. But as I spent more and more time travelling the world, writing about the arts and culture, interviewing cultural ministers, getting involved with people who were running the business end of the arts, I became more and more interested in 
in the nature of their work and just reached the point where I thought, you know what, I'm really tired of just commenting on, on this stuff. I really want to start getting my hands dirty and delivering it. And I felt it was really important that if I was going to be taken seriously in, in a role as an arts manager or a cultural leader in some way, that I give myself some intellectual and professional breathing space and development time. So I applied for something called the CLAW Leadership Programme. Oh, and yes. was lucky enough to, to win a fellowship on that. This extraordinary program which would take people from the creative industries and essentially give us an elite cultural MBA year where we would be exposed to arts leaders of the highest levels. So as a result of that program, I went through a huge personal as well as professional transformation, spent several months working at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, and then went to work for the Cleveland Orchestra in Ohio in the US for a couple wow. of months as well. What was that like? Because that that's very famous, isn't it's it? What, one of the reasons I wanted to go was obviously with a music background and having been a music journalist, the Cleveland Orchestra is one of the world's top orchestras. I mean, they would, of course, like many others, argue that they are the best orchestra yeah. in the world. But they're also a fascinating example of a very high profile, essentially Western European arts institution in one of the most deprived and challenged areas of the United States. So one of the reasons I was interested in going to Cleveland was to see how an arts organisation of something like classical music can survive in such challenging economic and demographic circumstances. What did you take away from that time? I took away from that time the gratitude that I come from a country which has proper public support of the arts. And whilst we are all under significant pressure to deliver and we are likely to see significant funding and budget cuts as well as pay freezes, pay reductions and staff reductions, across the arts in Britain we still come from a psychology and a culture which recognises and values that the arts are important to our society. So you came straight back into a fabulous job. Into a fabulous job. And has it been fabulous? It's been absolutely fantastic and uh, whilst people would say he would say that wouldn't he um, it's absolutely true it's an extraordinary collection of institutions to work with. Um, there's the Natural History Museum, the Science Museum and the V&A so three international museums, yep. three international universities, the Imperial College London, the Royal College of Art and the Royal College of Music. I have three European cultural centres, the Institut Français, the Goethe Institute and the Austrian Cultural Forum, the Ismaili Centre, the Royal Commission for 1851, the Serpentine Gallery, Royal Parks, Kensington Palace <laughs> and the Royal Geographical Society. So it's a pretty I mean, really? extraordinary <laughs> collection of institutions to work with. It doesn't seem fair that you've got all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody once asked me how I could describe my job and I said it's a bit like herding really big intellectual cats. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but it's, it's fascinating because the, the one thing about the institutions is that they are all about promoting education and culture to the broadest audiences and the intellectual clout and gravitas that they have by working together yeah, is pretty there. extraordinary yeah. and you really. have some amazing buildings as well extraordinary buildings so just the built environment never mind the the way that the institutions intellectualize and, and animate their their content but just the, the physical infrastructures in which we operate are amazing it's really fascinating working with experts across all of those sectors both in local government there's a fantastic team at kensington and chelsea who we work very closely with there's a great team across all of the institutions and it's my privilege to be able to pull all of that together to ensure that in 2012 and the completion of the road project we have achieved everything that we want to achieve and have a major sense of new ownership 
collectively and intellectually and culturally over that space and that will hopefully help us encourage even more audiences to come and visit. Tell us what the climate's like and is this a sector that people should be encouraged to come into? It's absolutely an industry that people should be involved with. The creative industries generate well over £7 billion to the national economy. They punch well above their weight and the array and diversity of professional opportunities are absolutely mammoth. We've been very fortunate and we've just won some funding from the government's Future Jobs Fund. We were very interested in taking on some young, long-term unemployed people to work in the creative industries and develop them as apprentices and give them opportunities. So we're taking on two young people from the Future Jobs Fund to work with us. It's really horrible out there. But if you are passionate about culture, if you believe in the creative industries, if you think that culture helps change people and broaden their minds and expand your horizons, both personal and societal, then I can't think of a better place to be. So just to finish up, if people are thinking about exploring a career in the cultural sector, is there a place that they can go to to research? There are a number of opportunities. I would advise people who are sort of 16, 17, if you've got a local museum or a local arts organisation, start volunteering. If you get a couple of years of volunteering experience, you will understand how cultural and creative institutions operate. It also looks fantastic on your CV. Culture is something that you're passionate about and is a lifelong interest and enjoyment. You can't really bluff it. You have to show that you've got commitment to the sector. But beyond that, there are a number of really interesting avenues you can explore. The government's creative industries network is called Creative and Cultural Skills. They have a fantastic website, lots and lots of information, including audio and video files, where you can find out particular career paths, what your salary expectations might be, what qualifications you might need. The government has been very good at developing new creative diplomas, such as creative media diplomas, which are very focused on getting people into the new technologies and creative industries. So there are lots of new opportunities emerging both in the education sector and in the professional sector. So those are just two ways that the structure is helping support the next generation of creative talent, really. Okay, thanks very much, Paul. It's really interesting. Pleasure to be here. Will you come back and talk about the music day? Absolutely. We'd love to. 20th of June. 20th of June, yeah. 20th of June, yeah. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks. Ijoma has joined us from Guardian Jobs. Hi, Ijoma. Thanks for joining us. So you're going to tell us about the jobs that have made it onto the list today? Yes. With Kerry. Okay, off you go, you two. Okay. Kicking off the chart at 10, the British Museum Company is looking for two IT support technicians to provide frontline support and assist the IT manager. In at nine, a portfolio manager is needed for the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, Nairobi headquarters. This post will involve managing multi-million dollar portfolios to drive the performance of investments to achieve the most for children. From Nairobi to Leeds for number eight, the South Leeds Academy is looking for an attendance improvement officer to beat poor attendance among its young people who need to have excellent organisation and communication skills. Those looking for an attractive salary will be interested in number seven. The Homes and Communities Agency is offering over £50,000 per annum to the right design and standards manager. Project management experience is essential. At six, the Referral and Assessment Service needs a Children's Services Consultant. This will involve addressing weaknesses within the services function and improving training and supervision arrangements within the team. Number five is an IT graduate leadership scheme at a financial services group. This post has a September start and a starting salary of 28k. At four, an international utilities company need a YouTube executive to oversee the running of the company's YouTube channel. This is not a technical or broadcast role, but would suit an experienced press officer or writer with a good knowledge of social media. 
More social media at three, a household broadcasting name is looking for a social media executive to enrich its interactive content. Just shy of the top spot at two is a development officer role for international tracing and message services at the British Red Cross Society. And top of the jobs at one is a marketing manager position at the London Symphony Orchestra. The winning candidate will manage and edit the production of concert programmes and publicity material. And now for some advice about preparing for a job interview. Kerry, you were talking to author Denise Taylor, weren't you? Tell us a bit about what we're about to hear. Yeah, well, Denise has written the book Now You've Been Shortlisted, which offers advice on assessment centres and interviews. And she gave me some top tips on what to expect to interview, how to prepare, what to ask and what not to do as well. When employers decide to recruit somebody, and it's such an expensive process that they want to get it right, they need to be clear about what it is they want the person to do. So obviously they've got a job description. With assessment centres, almost every company is going to use competencies. And so they work out what the competencies are, which could be something like strategic awareness, commercial understanding, ability to relate well to people. And then they put the assessment centre together to pick out all these different things. How much preparation do you need to do to perform well at these sort of assessment centres? If you go into an assessment centre and you wing it um, and you get through then brilliant, you know, you're, you're one of the few people that can do that. But there's, there's things I write about in the book, about like doing the research on the company. You need to understand not just about the job you're going for. If you're applying for a job with, with an organisation, think about the, the broader picture. Think about what's happening elsewhere. I think you've always got to be the real positive version of you. And some of the things I say just sound so obvious, um, but when I talk about these to my, my personal clients, they're going like, oh, am I really meant to be doing that? And I'm, yes, you are. So it's, sort of, it's when you arrive, be nice to the person at the reception desk be pleasant to the people that you're also being assessed with and there may only be one job so you're all competing against each other but you never know when an assessor's going to notice what you do and even when they say that you're not being assessed people will still pick up on that sort of information and with assessment sense you've got to treat every exercise individually so you do a group discussion to begin with then maybe some psychometric testing then maybe you're in a role play exercise and then you've got the interview what are the biggest mistakes that people make at assessment centers and how can they avoid them if we think about the group exercise one of the mistakes people do as I said earlier is that they don't speak up it doesn't matter how many great ideas that you've got in your head unless you say nobody's going to know about them the other thing that people can do is to fail to think about the purpose of the exercise a group exercise is asking you to discuss something and to generally and to come to a conclusion so it's getting involved it's not just in the content and it's the process and in fact if you're somebody who's more quiet spending time talking about process is a really great way to make more comments then when we think about things like um, a role play exercise that often you have to do some sort of interaction with either an actor or an assessor it's thinking this isn't real this isn't real you know this is just a you know it's just not going to work you've got to actually treat the exercises for real and always always ask for feedback now some organizations might not want to give it you because it's quite a bit of work but it's good practice and if you ask in a nice friendly way then they should give you some even if it's verbally rather than in writing let's move on to interviews and the nerves (laughs) you know how can people sort of cope with that and deal with that feeling and control it you have to think about well nerves is a good thing but you also have to be prepared and if we think that a lot of interviews particularly if they're part of an assessment centre but even if they're not will be a competency based interview and a competency could be something like you know relating to people and then think of all the 
examples that you could share with the interviewer about how you've related to people. And the sorts of questions that I would ask as an interviewer is, I'd be looking for an example when you've worked really well as part of a team. I'd be looking for an example about when you've had to persuade people. I'd be looking for an example about how when you've had to work with somebody who's very, very difficult. Also, we, we always, always as interviewers are going to ask you about your strengths and weaknesses. And that can be asked in different ways. You know, so for example, you know, what does your boss, what does your friend think of some of your strengths? And the more you understand yourself, then the easier it is to give those answers. But the other thing you have to prep is questions to ask. Because the worst thing, and I'm always asking interview, interviewees questions, and I say, well, what questions have you got? And they go like, oh, no, nothing really. And they sort of mumble that everything's being covered. And I'm just thinking, get a grip. If I got offered the job, what is it that I could do now that's, that would help me to prepare? Where do you see the job going? Link to something about your research. You know, um, I read on the internet that, you know, you introduced this new product and I wondered what the implications are going to be for sales. What are the most common mistakes that people make in interview then? I think the first thing is, when we think about on the interpersonal qualities side, is they don't make eye contact and they don't look at you and they mumble down at their feet and so you know you 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 want to have a good start to it and I do get candidates who say can I just pull out my pad and I'm never sure at that point just what is it for is it just so that they can make the occasional note and a big no-no is to have your answers written down and then to flick through your folder to find the right answer. Is there anything you need to add or anything people really need to know about interview process? I think the whole thing about interview process is allow some time to prepare. So the key things is, you know, research the company at the beginning, make sure that you understand as much about the company, understand the job, understand how you match up, have some relevant examples that you can think of. And also, as we were talking earlier, it's about coming up with some of the questions. But at the end of the day, you know, things are going to happen and you're going to walk out there and you think, I just never said, I could have said that in such a better way. And again, it's why not write them a note, get an email over as soon as you get back home, sooner if you've, if you've got your sort of iPhone, that you can get it sent off on. And say, you know, when I answered the question, I was a bit vague. You know, having given it some thought now, this is what I should have said. It was really nice to meet you and look forward to hearing from you. Brilliant. Thank you. That was Denise Taylor talking to Kerry earlier today. So, Kerry, tell us what's happening next week. On March 4th, inspired by my interview with Denise, I'm going to do a live Q&A on interview advice and Denise Taylor is going to join us for that one. Oh, good. And then on March 5th, we've got a chance for you to ask questions about the Young Lions competition. And this ties in with the Cannes Lions International Advertising Festival. And the Guardian's running a competition to put somebody forward to represent the UK in the competition. So there's going to be a brief and you've got like two days to come up with a concept. And if you're the best, you're going to Cannes to represent the UK. God, exciting. Yes. That's it for now. All that's left is to thank our guest, Paul Cutts, Julian Linley, Ijoma Waboso from Guardian Jobs, Denise Taylor, and of course, Kerry Ann Eustace. Thank you. Remember, you can find out more on everything we've talked about on careers.guardian.co.uk. Careers Talk was produced this week by Sarah Cudden. I'm Aljo Filatrani. Thanks for listening. Listener.